I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, and we're continuing to keep our eye on the U.S. House of Representatives. It looks like they are going to begin uh, to debate and vote on a few of the bills. It looks like uh, we're not sure which one they're going to go after first, whether it will be the bipartisan infrastructure deal or whether it will be the broader, bigger, more expensive $1.75 trillion uh, social safety net bill uh, coming out of the Biden agenda. And so that's going to be interesting to watch. We're going to keep our eyes on that. They've had uh, a vote open, and it looks like they've finally closed that vote. They set a record by several hours, the longest vote uh, held open uh, in the nation's history as the Democrats uh, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been scrambling to try to garner the votes so they had confidence. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is very shrewd on the uh, floor of the House of Representatives. She's not going to call for votes if she doesn't think she has them and that they're not going to tip her way. Uh, we know there have been a group of uh, more moderate Democrats who have been calling quite loudly uh, to not have a vote until there is a score, a CBO score uh, on the bill. Uh, of course, you can remember uh, it wasn't that long ago when uh, the Republicans were moving things through without uh, Democratic votes uh, on President Trump's tax uh, initiative. And then uh, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi uh, was very adamant and very loud of not proceeding without a CBO score. So equal opportunity offender time. This is this is how it goes back and forth based on who's in power uh, but right now, that power lever is in the hands of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. And it looks like she may have twisted enough arms uh, to to possibly get the, one of those or possibly both of those across the line today. And so we'll continue to follow that and monitor that uh, as we go through the show and throughout the afternoon here on KSL News Radio. Now, the political world still analyzing the Glenn Youngkin uh, race in Virginia. How'd he do that? Uh, we spent a lot of time on that yesterday, breaking it down. Uh, but we saw something today uh, from Zed Jelani, a uh, freelance journalist who lives in Virginia. So he was actually a voter in this. Uh, he's the co founder of the newsletter Inquire. And he had an interesting piece in terms of. Uh, breaking down the race, what was it that uh, ultimately led to the victory? And if you missed yesterday's program, uh, we actually had Jeff Rowe on, who is the founder and CEO of Axiom Strategies, a political consulting firm. And uh, he was the general consultant to the Yunkin campaign. He's a data-driven strategist, and uh, he executed a flawless campaign. Many said a blueprint kind of campaign. Uh, We'll break that down a little bit. Uh, but but let's go to uh, let's go to Zed Jelani, uh, who joins us now uh, through all kinds of technical maneuvers. I'm not sure how the gremlins made it through the system. Uh, but Zed, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Wonderful. So your piece was great in that it really looked at this uh, path that Glenn Youngkin worked through. And I want to I want to start with really kind of the communication strategy of all of this. It was really an interesting semi lean into populism, but with a different kind of focus and flair. 
Yeah. So in terms of this race, you know, I myself am a Virginia resident. I lived here off and on to, since 2009. And uh, I've been a reporter. I've been on Capitol Hill, the State Department, on a lot of elections. And this was a really interesting one because I think you can contrast it with how the Republicans have been approaching the state of Virginia in the past few cycles. Uh, for instance, Ed Gillespie's run in 2017 for the same spot in the governor's mansion, you know, leaned very heavily on immigration, on you know, MS-13 sanctuary cities. You didn't really see any of those issues raised this time. Mm. Uh, instead, Youngkin focused very, uh, very, I think, discreetly on the issue of education. Uh, and this is something that I, you know, I've been reporting on all year, a different context uh, when it comes to COVID school closures, uh, to admission standards, to some high schools that they shifted away from using tests, uh, to some of the curriculum that they were using, you know, based on issues like race, uh, gender, gender policy, so on and so forth. Those issues have been sort of percolating in Virginia, particularly in the northern part of the state, which is a little bit more liberal, um, I would say for the past year or so. And I think that a lot of that anger uh, was pre-existing to the campaigns. And what Youngkin did was not so much generate um, the controversies here, but tap into them, right? He yeah. sort of understood the pulse of, I think, a lot of the electorate, particularly the folks in the suburbs who are a little bit more swingy in Virginia. And I think he really understood where they were standing on these issues. And particularly when he and Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, had that debate, uh, I think McAuliffe kind of set into the trap there of basically dismissing, I think, a lot of the, the parental anger that existed among people who are not just hardcore conservatives, but a lot of people who just really wanted their kid to get to get a decent kind of normal education. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. We had uh, Jeff Rowe, who was the uh, general consultant for the campaign uh, for Governor-elect Youngkin, uh, and, and he said something really interesting, and I think you tapped into this in a really unique way, Zed, uh, and that is that uh, he did just start talking about these things, but it wasn't like a – it was more a tap into. He didn't foster it. He didn't fuel it or foment it. Uh, he just kind of allowed it to come. But he, he ended up with a really interesting coalition around education that included uh, teachers who were, were struggling in terms of their wages and pay and being in school. As you mentioned, some of the elite uh, folks from the northern part of the state uh, who were worried about you know these lowering of standards and what that was doing to parents who were interested in curriculum, to those who were just tired of their kids being at home. And suddenly these groups that normally wouldn't have been a coalition, they were mad, they were motivated, and they, and they were mobilized in the end. Yeah, and look, I, I knew a number of people who in the past, I knew someone who voted for Joe Biden who went for, for Youngkin. I know people who I don't think had really ever been deeply involved in anything like GOP politics who also, I think, were swung on this issue. And I think a big part of that is, look, uh, they, we have something in Virginia called the SOLs, which are you know, standards that we teach students and we test them through standardized tests. We saw double-digit uh, drops in Virginia last year, even in the northern part of the state. Like, they had very detailed data from the nor- from northern Virginia where you saw double-digit drops in things like math. Or, uh, you know, a year of the pandemic and, and schools being closed. And if that was, was what was happening was in northern Virginia, imagine what was happening in rural Virginia and southwest Virginia, parts of the state that don't have really good broadband access, right? Mm. I think the quality of their education really plummeted. And even if you look at, I remember I was reading a a news piece from November 2020, even at that point, they were saying, well, in Fairfax, we're not so sure if we're going to be going back to in-person education. Uh, I think someone at NPR tracked this, that Virginia had the seventh fewest in-person days in school of any state during, uh, during last year, during the pandemic year. And so I think this was a real frustration that then started to build into other issues, meaning, you know, a lot of times your kids are at home, you're, you're actually seeing what they're learning in school on Zoom, on Zoom meetings, right? right. Uh, some of it was maybe frustrating, some of it was unusual or weird. Uh, we start, of course, you know, they call it critical race theory. It's kind of a catch-all term for a lot of stuff being introduced. And a lot of these parents started showing up at school board meetings and trying to participate and be involved. 
And I think a lot of the administrators and the school board members were not used to that. They, right. they were used to having parents who were more subdued and more passive about their education, but it became very passionate. And I don't think they handled it very well, right? Whether they agreed yeah. or disagreed with what the parents were saying, I think they were very, very heavy handed in terms of the way they responded. And I think that only frustrated matters uh, even more. And I think Glenn Youngkin saw all this. Uh, you know, I interviewed yeah. a, an eight year member of the Fairfax School Board who says she met with them in the summer, this past summer, uh, several months ago, and told them at that point that this was going to be the issue of the campaign, particularly in Northern Virginia. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to sneak in one last quick question with you, Zed, before I let you go. Uh, you were there, so you experienced a lot of the campaign ads. Uh, most of the reports that we've seen were that the McAuliffe campaign it was about two out of three, very negative, kind of running the last campaign against the previous president kind of ad, uh, where the Yunkin campaign uh, was, I think, five out of six were more positive issue-based, uh, local issue-based kind of ads. How did it feel from where you were? What's the takeaway there? Yeah, so I think every anytime I went to YouTube or went to any uh, website that uses like maybe Google Ads or something like that, I would start seeing campaign ads. So it was weeks and weeks of this for me. Uh, and I noticed this is that on the Youngkin side, largely I would get ads about things like uh, reinforcing policing. I get ads about the grocery tax because uh, uh, Youngkin has suggested suspending it, uh, at least for now. Um, things like that. Generally, he was talking, Youngkin was generally talking about his agenda. I think he did go a little bit negative on McAuliffe on some issues like Dominion. Uh, energy, which is the big energy utility in, that uh, McAuliffe was close to. But largely, it was, it was a kind of an agenda-driven campaign, kind of mobilizing a lot of the conservative base and some of the swing issues like education, whereas McAuliffe largely was negative. I think someone did an analysis here and showed that the majority of Youngkin's ads were positive and the majority of McAuliffe's ads were negative, and largely it was about invoking Donald Trump. And I think the issue here is that Youngkin was actually very intelligent. He didn't denounce Trump. He didn't renounce Trump. Uh, but he, he sought his endorsement. He got the endorsement. But also Trump never set foot in Virginia during the entire election campaign. Right. I think it kept kind of a healthy distance from him yeah. uh, because Trump is still a fairly unpopular former president in Virginia. But I don't think that McAuliffe's, can't, McAuliffe's attempt to compare Youngkin directly to Trump really caught with voters. I mean, we could see that in the exit polls that Youngkin actually had a higher favorability than both Trump and McAuliffe, actually. Wow. Um, and so I think Youngkin was able to distinguish himself while at the same time not losing those Virginians, you know, maybe, I don't know, 40 something percent of Virginians who actually do really like Trump. Uh, and, and I think really being able to thread that needle uh, was his key to victory. And McAuliffe, I, I think, leaned way too much on the negativity. And I think I, I ultimately probably turned people off because they were thinking, why is this guy running? I mean, he's just telling us what he's against. He's not really talking about what he's for. So. Exactly. Uh, great analysis. Uh, Zed uh, Jelani, thank you so much for joining us on a Friday. Freelance journalist who lives in Virginia, co-founder of the newsletter Inquire. Some really great, some really great thoughtful pieces there. But Zed, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. All right, we'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back, a time to uh, reflect. We're going to look at the life and legacy of Colin Powell. His funeral held today at the National Cathedral. Stay with us right here on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. 
What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.